Hear now the word of God from Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask for your blessing. We ask, Lord, that you would give your Holy Spirit, that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word, that you would give us clarity, that, Lord, we would humble ourselves before you to receive what you say and only what you say, and that we might find great hope and satisfaction in your promises. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the centuries, philosophers have argued about knowledge and certainty. How does man come to know things, and how can he be certain that what he knows is true? And there have been various theories advanced, and they all reduce to really three options. We're going to oversimplify them a bit, but for the, you'll understand for the sake of the point that knowledge either comes by our experience, through our senses, we, we touch, we taste, we hear, we see, and only what can be verified by our experiences, say some, can be certain knowledge. Others would say that knowledge comes by reason. We can learn only things that we know by reason. We cannot trust our senses. We could be deceived. We could be having an eye problem. We could be hard of hearing. Therefore, we must gain certainty by reason. And then, of course, there is a third, less popular method of gaining knowledge, and that is by authority or testimony. When I taught philosophy to high school students, I would often say to them, I think that most of the knowledge that you have and most of the things that you take for certain have actually been gained by authority. Now, I don't mean by authority apart from your senses or apart from your reason, but almost everything you know and depend upon is by some authority or another. For instance, do you know your name? How do you know your name? Well, because someone told you that. You did not find that by reason. You did not learn that through your senses. You learned that because someone told it to you. What's your birthday? What is my name? Where are we right now? All of these questions, all of these things that we take for granted depend upon some testimony or authority of some kind. Well, when it comes to the truths of the gospel, it is no different. The promises of Scripture depend upon the authority of the one who gives those promises. Now, just as every way of gaining information has its limitations, such as reason. I can reason certain things. I can gain some knowledge by reason. I can ascertain without any sensory experience that I exist. Because even if I'm doubting that I exist, I know that someone is here to doubt, therefore I must exist, because I don't think you can doubt without existing. And we can gain knowledge by our senses. However, 
they're all subjected to failure. Even so with authority or testimony. And a truth gained by an authority is only as reliable as that authority. So if someone makes a promise, for instance, the person who promises is to believed, be believed rather on the basis of his character and his ability to perform what he promises. Now then, in this passage, we see that God promises salvation to those who believe and that God performs what he promises in those who believe. Just two little points tonight because you had soup, so I wanted to keep it short. So we'll see in verses 16 and 17, God promises salvation to those who believe and that God performs what he promises in those who believe. Let's look first at God's promise to save those who believe. In verse 16, we read, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. We have to ask, first of all, what is it? Therefore it, what is it? It refers to the inheritance which is promised to Abraham and his children. Earlier in the chapter, in verses 6 and 7, it was referred to the imputation of righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. It includes things like Abraham and his children inheriting the world, being the heirs of the world. And we saw before from Genesis that that includes land and descendants and blessing. Not only blessing to Abraham and his children, but that Abraham himself and his children would be a blessing to the whole world. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, this inheritance is called the blessing of Abraham. And we see that this blessing of Abraham comes to a fine point in the birth of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who is the seed of Abraham and through whom the whole world will be blessed. Martin Luther said that the blessing of Abraham is righteousness by faith. And in the context here of Romans chapter 4, that is an accurate statement. The apostle has been talking about righteousness by faith, and he is using the example of Abraham and the blessings that he was promised and received as an example of righteousness by faith. Now, what I want you to see is this. We can take the all of the promises given to Abraham, and that includes you know, having, being the father of many nations, inheriting the world, having many offspring, having offspring as numerous as the stars or the sand on the shore, or gaining the whole world and all the people in it, or righteousness by faith, or even the promise of the Redeemer, or the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. We can summarize all of these under one part of the promise. I will be your God. The Lord told Abraham, I will be your God. And that is the blessing of Abraham. Do you see, that is the whole point of all of it. That is the point of the Redeemer. Jesus Christ came to be the Redeemer in order that God could be our God when we have faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that we have by faith and the forgiveness of sins that we have on the basis of the Redeemer are all for the sake of God being our God. And we being his people. 
So the it here then refers to that promise, that promise which is God will be our God. And because he is our God, it means that he will be good and merciful to us and give us that which we cannot attain for ourselves. Now then, how do Abraham and his descendants obtain this promised blessing? Well, verse 16 continues, it is of faith. When the Lord makes faith the condition as opposed to works, he makes the whole thing a matter of receiving rather than earning. In other words, the promised blessing is something that you must receive, not something that you may obtain or earn by virtue of your own efforts or worth. But why does the Lord insist upon making it of faith? We saw earlier that excluded our circumcision and works of the law and the law itself. All of these things are excluded. Why does the Lord insist on making the promise come by faith? There are two reasons that follow. And the first of them we will call the principle of the covenant. And that is this, continuing in verse 16, so that it may be according to grace. The Lord makes the promise received by faith in order that the promise and the inheritance may be by grace. If it operates according to any other principle, then it is not grace. But if it operates by grace, then it is not any other principle. If it is by grace, it is not by works of the law. If it is by grace, then it is not by merit. If it is by grace, it is not by obedience. So grace is very important to God. The the promise to Abraham then operates on this principle. You know the word grace, and it simply means favor. God's grace is his favor, his kind disposal to us. But here, and in the context of Romans chapter 4, it is contrasted with works which imply an obligation, debt, merit, owed. Therefore, we may think of grace in this instance as gift. God wants it to depend upon gift. You see, it has to be something you receive. As a gift, it's something that is freely given. And in this case, it's not only a gift that we didn't earn, but really a gift that is entirely the opposite of what we have earned. Now, why then is God so concerned that it be according to grace? Well, we saw previously one reason is that God wants no man, God will have no man, no creature boasting before him. God, as the creator and Lord, will receive the glory for salvation. But here, our second explanation of why God wants it by by faith is... Another reason, and that is so that God can actually preserve his promise. This follows in these words, so that the promise might be sure. Follow it. It is by faith in order that it might be by grace in order that it might be sure. Beloved, think of this for a moment. What if God had made it by some other means or some other principle? What if, for instance, he had made it by works? 
Who then would ever inherit the promise? No one. No one could ever obtain the promise. Therefore, in making the blessing by faith, God ensures that the promise is according to grace, and he therefore ensures that men, even sinful men, can receive the promise in spite of their sins and failures. More than that, since it is all according to grace by faith, the promise itself is not restricted to those who had been born under the law, those who were Abraham's natural descendants. Now, we know that Abraham's natural descendants would have had no more success at earning it by the law than we would have. But suppose it were by the law and not by grace through faith. Then no one outside of Abraham's natural descendants would have had any right to it. Therefore, we Gentiles, we not having been born of Abraham physically, would have no right to the promise. And verse 16 says this, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. That sentence reads better for us if we read it this way, if we take the word only and put it towards the end of the first part. So, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to those who are of the law only, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. In other words, the apostle is saying the promise will be sure to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. The condition for the reception of God's blessings is the same. It is faith. So we see that God, in fact, makes a promise, and he ensures that that promise will be by faith. And in ensuring that promise is by faith, God is actually preserving that promise. God, in his kindness, is seeing to it that you can, in fact, obtain what he offers. Secondly, I want us to look at how God performs the very thing that he promises in those who believe. Now, there's an assertion towards the end of verse 16 that carries into verse 17, and you'll see there's a separation there with, with a parenthesis, and there's an Old Testament quotation in parentheses, and then it picks up again in verse 17. And we're going to take the assertion itself without the parentheses for a moment and then come back to that parentheses, okay? So Paul says, Abraham, who is the father of us all... So Paul is telling us all we are children of Abraham. But, beloved, I don't look like Abraham. I've never even been to Israel. I am not descended from Abraham. How can this be? Well, then he continues, if you skip to the other side of the parentheses, Abraham is the father of us all in the presence of him in whom he believed. In other words, in the eyes of God, we all who believe, are children of Abraham. Do you see that? In God's sight, Abraham is the father of everyone who believes. But now let's return for a moment to that parenthetical quotation in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That is given, that verse, that verse is cited to confirm his point that Abraham is the father of us all before God. 
You know it as a quotation of Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, in which God gave Abraham a new name. He changed his name from Abram, father or great father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And the Lord said to him, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. And then the reason comes. For I have made you a father of many nations. How many children did Abraham have in Genesis 17.5? He didn't have any. No children yet. But do you see that in the sight of God, before God, Abraham was the father of many nations when God declared it to him? This is very reminiscent of when Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. How much righteousness did Abraham have when he believed God? None. But God counted it to him as righteous. Do you see that in the sight of God, Abraham was righteous when he believed? And in the sight of God, Abraham was the father of many nations when God declared it to him. So you see, God performs what he promises in those who believe. And I want you to think about this in terms of your own salvation. God declares you are a descendant of Abraham. That means you are entitled to all of those promises, to all of those blessings. God says that you are righteous. That means in the sight of God, you are righteous. Let's look for a moment at God, the power by which he performs those promises. Chapter, or excuse me, verse 17 continues. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now we see this in the case of Abraham. God, who gives life to the dead. Abraham and his wife Sarah were both, metaphorically speaking, dead. They were near death. They were not of childbearing age when God told him, You are the father of many nations. If that was to be true for Abraham, God would have to perform it. God, who has life in himself, would have to give life to the dead. He would need to create life with a man who was too old to conceive and a woman who was too old to bear children. And that's exactly what God did. He gives life to the dead. And I hope that you see the connection here between Abraham and and his son Isaac and us in our resurrection, right? God gives life to the dead. But God gives life to the dead not only in the resurrection, but God gives life to the dead in regeneration. God makes you alive to hear and to receive his promises. You being dead in trespasses and sins would not be capable of receiving the promise of God and thereby receiving the thing promised by God. But God makes alive dead things. He has in himself the power to do that. But notice what else about God's power. And calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham had no children, and the Lord said, You are the father of many nations. I want to read this from Calvin. 
He says, all things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. You see, what we are having here is a contradiction between two authorities. The authority of me and my experience, or my reason, and the authority of God who declares, you are righteous who believe in my Son. So we need to, as Calvin says, shut our eyes to these things and focus on what God has said. Because God is the God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. God spoke into the darkness and created the light. In Genesis, God said, let there be light. More literally, light shall be. God commanded light before there was light. He spoke light into existence. God spoke children into existence for Abraham. God speaks righteousness into existence for those who believe in Jesus Christ. So then, God performs what he promises in those who believe. And do you see how Abraham obtained what God promised because God performed it? But Abraham's part was what? To believe God. Abraham's part was to believe in the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Here then is our application. We have to believe God. We have to accept him for his authority. And what is that authority based upon? Well, in this passage, we see that he's a God who keeps his promises, for one thing. Also, he is a God who is powerful, right? Able to give life, able to create things out of nothing. God is a worthy authority, a trustworthy testimony. So we have to believe in God. Not believe our own experiences or minds, not our doubts, not what the world says, not what skeptics or the devil would say. And you know, I want to make a, just a passing observation on this and see how one of the attributes of God is his ability to create, right? His, his omnipotence. And he can create something out of nothing. And he can take something that doesn't exist and say, you exist. Do you know that's a prerogative of God? That's something unique to him? That only he has the power and authority to do? And sometimes human beings try to do this. There's a whole philosophy built on this where man wants to decide for himself that what doesn't exist, what state of affairs is not real, will become, will be real. We see this in the confusion of human sexuality. When a young man says to you that he's a girl, do you see what he's doing? He is trying to call that thing which is not as though it were. But man does not have that prerogative. Likewise, 
when sinners come before God with their own merits, with their pretended righteousness, what are they doing? Declaring themselves righteous when they really are not. You see, beloved, we cannot create what is required out of nothing. We are left with what is and with what God says and what will be according to what God says. So we must trust the Lord. Now, believing, saving faith, for this evening, I'm going to give you three parts of it or three things to saving faith. Number one, saving faith renounces everything else but Jesus Christ. It trusts in Christ alone. All right? it, it, it casts off, it repudiates any other hope for salvation besides Jesus Christ. Number two, it relies upon Jesus Christ. Our, our Westminster standards call it resting on Jesus Christ, relying on him as if he were the very bridge to safety. We are counting on him being able to do what he has promised. And then thirdly, applying it to ourselves. We must appropriate Jesus Christ and his benefits to ourselves. I want you to think about a medicine for some deadly disease. And if you take this medicine, you will be healed. But you've got to take the medicine, right? You must ingest it. If it sits in the bottle, if it sits on your shelf, if it's in your dad's hands or your mom's hands or your friend's hands, it will do you no good. You must take it out of the bottle and ingest it. So too it is with Jesus Christ. You must apply him to you as if he were some life-giving medicine. Now, you must ensure, dear friends, that your faith is indeed saving faith. It is genuine faith. There are many who profess faith. There are many who pretend faith. But we must have genuine faith. And I'm going to give you briefly four things by which you can identify and test your faith. Number one, genuine faith believes God. Oftentimes, we tend to talk about faith and belief as synonyms, and they really are But I want you to know this, that faith itself is a grace. It's a gift, right? And faith enables you to believe. Okay, God puts in you the disposition of faith, the the gift or the grace of faith, and it's by that faith that you believe. That's how you believe the gospel. But faith believes Not simply the promises of God, do you see? But believes God. It takes God at his word. I think Martin Luther said something along the lines of, if God told him to eat dirt, he would do it and think it was good for him. Why? Because he believes God for who God is and believes God would only tell him what is good and right. And that's the disposition, that's the mindset we have to have towards God. Do you have that? Is that that a a typical pattern for you that you trust God for who he is. And and when you read the Bible or you hear the Bible or you talk with friends about the Bible, you believe what it says. That's your natural reflex. Now I get it that there are some parts in the Bible that are harder than others and we don't always understand it. But is your your bent towards God's word one of doubt or, or quibbling? 
Or is it one of humble acceptance of what he says? Lord, I don't know how this is true or how you're going to do that, but you said it. I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to let you figure out the details. So faith believes God. We see this in the life of Abraham, don't we? We talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school. Abraham, the promise was that he would be the father of many nations, and he was going to have a son with his wife, even Isaac, and the promise was going to come through Isaac. No sooner did God receive this son who was the promised son, and the Lord told him to go and kill his son, to sacrifice his son on the altar. And Abraham did that. Why? Believing, as we learn in Hebrews, that God could even raise the dead. You see, he trusted the Lord to keep his promise, and he knew that God could not command him to do something that could destroy the promise to him. So faith believes God. Secondly, faith obeys God. We saw that again in the example of Abraham. Now, please be careful here. I am not saying that your obedience justifies you in the sight of God. I am saying the the faith that justifies you in the sight of God produces also in you obedience to that same God. When the Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, to the place that I will show you, Abraham got up very early in the morning and he took his son. You see, Abraham, who believed God, had the kind of faith that produced obedience to God. Faith fears God. And I don't mean fear in the sense of servile fear, in the sense of God's a big meaning, he's going to get you. I mean faith, I mean fear rather, that loves God and does not want to offend him and that cares about what he thinks. We see this with Abraham. What did the Lord say? Now I know that you fear me. That's what he said when, when he saw that he obeyed and brought his son. Is your natural or regular inclination to ask yourself, what would God think of this? Never mind what man says, never mind what any other person says, what would God think of this? God would be, God would be displeased if I did this, or God is not honored by this, or it breaks my heart that God would have to see this. You see, that's saving faith. That's the faith of Abraham. Finally, faith is comforted by God. Those who believe, yes, we we tremble at God's threatenings and we, we are shaken awake by his warnings and we do fear him and we want to obey him, but also faith is comforted by God. We hear his promises and they are sweet to us. They bring us comfort. Do, do the promises of God bring you comfort? Do you know that you deserve much worse than you've been given, but one little word from God comforts you? That's saving faith. That is saving faith. Now, at this point, one might say, I, I fear I have no faith. Let us distinguish between no faith and a little faith. There is a big difference between no faith and a little faith. Even a little faith. you understand? A little faith, a weak faith, just a little bit, can take hold of a very strong Savior. And I want you to understand, it is not the strength of your faith that keeps the promise of God. It is the strength of God who keeps His promise. So then even a little faith, if it is there right now, stir it up. Because that 
that salvation, that promise depends not on the strength of your faith, but the strength of the God who promises to give it to you by faith. If you have enough faith to be like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help me my unbelief. That is to be your prayer. Lord, I believe, help me to believe more. So, beloved, God promises salvation to those who believe And God performs what he promises in those who believe. And that's exactly what we need. We need God to perform in us what he has promised to us. And that shows us that he is eminently worthy of our trust. Let us pray. Almighty God, you who have made all things out of nothing have sworn by your very name to save those who believe in your Son. Oh God, you are worthy to be believed. Even if you never gave us another assurance, another sign, another sermon, another promise, Lord, even just the bare utterance of it from you is enough. And yet, oh God, you know us. You know our weakness. And Father, we ask that you would increase our faith. Your word is good. Your promise is sure. But Lord, we are weak. We believe. Help us. In our unbelief, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.